you would, you can take out your Bibles, or it's also printed in your bulletin. We're going to be looking at 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 22. Before I jump into this text, though, I want to say a few things about preaching and why I preach the way that I preach. The, the style of preaching is two kinds of style of preaching. One is topical preaching, where you pick a topic that's either uh, from the Bible or happening in culture or maybe is happening within your church, and you go through scriptures and you see how scriptures speak to that topic. The other way is expositional preaching and exegetical preaching. Those are fancy words, but what they really mean is that preaching that looks at a one book in the Bible and preaches it from the beginning to the end, and that's the kind of preaching that we do here typically at Belfont is that I will start at the beginning of a, of a book like Peter and work my way and work us all the way through it so we can see themes and we can see context and we see uh, different things that the Lord is trying to tell us. But ultimately, expositional preaching exposes Jesus in the text. And that's what exegetical means. Exegetical means going by verse by verse, sometimes spending more time in one verse than another verse, but seeing how in the text... We see Jesus, because Jesus said, the end of Luke, he said, all of the Bible points to me. And so that's the kind of preaching that you should expect and and that I will be delivering here at Belfont Presbyterian. And the reason I say that is because today we come to a text that's really tricky. It's really hard. In fact, some scholars say it's the most difficult passage in the New Testament to kind of expose and exegete, to kind of understand. And so I say that because we're going to need to do some exposition and some exegetical work this morning. The sermon this morning is going to be a little bit different as well because it's going to be kind of a two-parter. Now, some of you are already yawning at that. It's like, two parts? Oh, my goodness. It's only going to be an hour and a half. It's fine. (laughs) Just kidding. I'm going to keep it short. I'll keep it as short as I can. But it is going to be two parts because I believe that as we look at this tricky part of the text, the tricky part of this letter that Peter's writing, we're actually going to see the beauty of the whole text. And it's actually going to show us more of the main point And the main point being the beauty of Christ in the text. So, as a way of recap, Peter's been writing this letter to these Christians throughout Asia Minor. These Christians, he's telling them what to believe and why they believe it. And he's saying the same to us. He's saying that they believe in a risen Lord Jesus Christ. This Jesus who was crucified is now risen from the dead. What a mystery. And in that resurrection, there is now a hope, a living hope for you, he says. And that living hope means that now you have a purpose and a reason to live. In that risen, in that risen Lord Jesus Christ, in that living hope that comes to us by grace, we're now united with Christ. When we believe in Jesus, we're united with him, which is also a mystery. But what it does is it shapes us. It shapes the way that we live. And this is what Peter's been saying. He's been giving us the so what of this passage. So what does it matter that we're united with Christ? It means that now we are disruptive witnesses. Disruptive witnesses in where we work. Disruptive witnesses in how we respond to the government and the authority. Disruptive witnesses in our marriages with our spouses. 
This disruptive witness is not a negative thing, it's a positive thing. We are now countercultural. We love the unlovely. We are charitable and kind. We look to be compassionate and sympathetic. And now in this passage, he sets our minds and our eyes and our hearts back on the why. Why we do what we do. That is really important. Why do we do what we do? And so once again, he sets our minds back on the why, on the ultimate disruptive witness who is Jesus himself. And this is important because Peter is going to move. Next Sunday, we're going to start talking about a very hard situation, a hard topic, which is the topic of suffering. And so it's really important before we get to suffering for us to fix our eyes once again on Jesus, on who he is and what he has done for us. So hear these words from 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. Hear the word of the Lord for you. It is life. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, be put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were being brought safely through water." Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of of God with angels. Lord God, we, uh, we need you this morning. We need you to, um, do the work that only you can do and show us in this text, a very confusing text, It can be a very distracting text, the beauty of Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. So, Lord, be in our midst now, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, as I said, we're going to do this in two parts. The first part is going to be, uh, we're going to look at this tricky part. You already heard the tricky part, okay? Um, You already heard it. It was uh, this kind of where, where Jesus is is dies, and okay, that's good, he suffers, we get that, and, and then he is, uh, dies in the flesh, and then he's raised in the spirit, it says. And in there, he says he's raised in the spirit, in which he goes and he proclaims to the spirits in prison. Okay, not really tracking with you now, Peter. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Okay, I have no idea where you're going with this, Peter. Where the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight people, uh, were saved through water. You've completely lost me, Peter. And then Peter says, baptism, like we all know what he's talking about. Well, let me tell you and assure you that the original hearers of this, they would know what he is talking about. And I hope that at the end of this first little part of the sermon, you also will have a better understanding of what he is talking about. It's important for us in this passage as Alistair Begg, Alistair Begg is one of my favorite ministers, pastors. If you want to listen to a great uh, orator, preacher, he's, he's got this silky, smooth Scottish accent. Uh, Alistair Begg is out there in Cleveland, and he says this, the main thing is the plain thing. And so in this text, there's a lot of confusion, but there's a main thing. The main thing is Jesus. Peter is drawing our attention back to Jesus and what Jesus has done 
for us. So hang with me here. Uh, It might get a little sticky, but hang with me. I promise you there is a payoff for us. There are several different interpretations of this part of the passage, but I'm really only going to focus on one. And the reason why I'm going to focus on one is because I believe it is compelling from the text. And the second is, the others will just take up a lot more time, and they're kind of confusing. And I don't want to confuse us, and I don't want to take up a lot of our time. I want us to focus on the one that comes straight out of this passage. There is a timeline for Christ's crucifixion, death, and resurrection. The timeline goes like this. Jesus Christ stood before Pilate. Pilate found him innocent or basically washed his hands of him, gave him over to the Jews. The Jews wanted to kill him, so he had the Romans kill Jesus Christ. He was crucified. He hung on a cross, and as he was hanging there, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he utters something and he dies. What he utters, we find out in Luke 23, he says this, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he dies. His body is put in the grave, and then three days later, he's raised from the dead. So what happens during those three days? Well, he says, into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. So he's implying there that he goes to be with God in heaven. His spirit, and Peter says his spirit, is made alive. Here is the explanation of this passage that I find compelling from the text. Christ on the cross experiences hell. He experiences hell when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then, right before he dies, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Then after he dies, he is made alive in the spirit, and he fills both heaven and hell, because he is now a spirit. He consumes all things. And in this completion of the plan of salvation, he proclaims to the fallen angels, the demons and the evil spirits, he proclaims to them that he has won and they have lost. And this is what Peter is saying here. I've been made, he was made alive in the spirit And then he proclaims to these spirits in prison. How does the text support this? The first is proclaim, the word proclaim. There's two words for preaching in the New Testament. One is euangelion, which is evangelizing, which is this inviting people to believe in Jesus Christ. And then there's this word caruso, which is proclaiming to Jesus to believe or proclaiming to people to believe in Jesus Christ. So euangelion is inviting, and Caruso is proclaiming that Jesus Christ is king, that he is the savior, that he can save you from your sins. Caruso is the word that is used here, not euangelion. Peter uses that word specifically to say that Jesus is telling these spirits He's telling them something. He's not inviting them to believe in him. He's telling them, you lose and I win. He's not trying to convert these spirits. He's proclaiming that he is. It is used in the plural in the Greek. And that's important because it's an unqualified plural spirits versus a qualified Spirit. A qualified spirit like the spirit or a spirit usually refers to a person. 
Or if there's an adjective, so if I say Connell, that old spirit, right? That is an adjective, I'm talking about a person. But here, it's in the plural and it's unqualified. There is no the or a, it just says spirits. And when that is used in the Bible, he's referring to supernatural. He's referring to demons, to fallen angels, or to good angels, those that live in heaven. So when he uses this word, it matters. The way he uses proclaim and the way that he uses spirit. And then he doesn't say hell. He uses the word prison. And this is important. Because this word prison means those that have been captured and put dominion over them. They are those that have been, that are guarded, that are watched over. They're not free just to roam. And so Peter is using these three words to make a point that Jesus Christ proclaims to the spirits that are in prison that you have been defeated. 2 Peter 2.4 helps us understand this. It says this in 2 Peter 2.4. Again, Peter wrote that letter too. He says this, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and that word hell he's talking about there is captivity, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Therefore, it seems to me from this text and to many others from this text that Peter is saying that in the Spirit, Jesus goes to fallen angels who sought to undermine the plan of God and tells them, you lose, I win. I also think there's something interesting here that's worth talking about, and it's a cultural connection that Peter is making. Peter uses language here that would have been very common. When he talks about Noah, it would have been very common to... um, to the Jews and the Gentiles of that day. When he talks about fallen angels and he talks about um, Noah, maybe for us we're like, what's the connection there? But if I started off the sermon and I said, listen, in a galaxy far, far away, a long time ago, you would say, oh, I know what you're talking about. If I said, listen, there's Jedis and there's Ewoks, you'd be like, yeah, 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 I get that. That's a Star Wars reference. But most of you would say, oh, yeah, that's Star Wars. Okay, the same thing is happening here. What Peter is doing is he's using a very common book that would have been read by many Jews and many Gentiles. And that book was called the Book of Enoch. The Book of Enoch is called spin-off literature. And I want to be clear why it's called spin-off literature. In our theological tradition, we do not believe that these spin-off literatures are inspired by God. So although they're very interesting to read and they are helpful to a point, They are not the word of God, and therefore, they do not give us life and faith. And so it's important for us to kind of place this in the right place, that the book of Enoch, because I believe that there is a growing kind of um, desire, especially in the Christian community, but I also think in the world, because the world uh, wants something spiritual, they want something more, that they have become um, enamored by extra books of the Bible, They've become enamored by just kind of going down the YouTube rabbit hole and watching video after video, but it's not the Word of God. This is the Word of God, and it gives us life, and it gives us faith 
because it tells us about Jesus Christ. And so the book of Enoch is interesting, but I just want to make it very clear. It is not the word of God. The book of Enoch is believed to be written by Enoch. Enoch was a man that we hear about in Genesis 5, and we also hear him again in Jude 14. But in Genesis 5, he walks with God, and then he's kind of like, zoomp, he's like taken up. He doesn't die. And the story goes like this. There's three books that Enoch supposedly wrote. And the first book is called the Book of Watchers. And I want you to hear this story because maybe you can see how it plays into this passage. It says this, after he walks with God, he's taken up to live with the sons of God, who are also called the Watchers. Some of these Watchers, they fall from heaven. And they come to earth. And they have relationships with women. And out of these relationships with women, there's a group of people called the Nephilim that show up. The Nephilim are actually recorded in the Bible in Genesis 6. They're called giants. Well, Enoch is sent by God to visit these fallen angels who are in prison for their rebellion against God. And as they go, he goes and visits these, these um, fallen angels. They plead with him and they say, Enoch, go back to God. Tell him we're really sorry. Have him free us. So Enoch goes back to heaven and he goes to God and he says, listen, I, you know, this is what these fallen angels are saying. What do you want me to tell them? And he says, you go and tell them, no way. They lose. I win. So Enoch goes back down to hell and proclaims to them, you lose, God wins. Do you see the parallel? You see, Peter is a really good pastor. We can miss that. He's taking what's going on in the culture, and he brings it to bear on them. Also Noah. Noah's a really interesting character as well. The Gentiles actually, in this area in Asia Minor, really loved Noah. In fact, this is fascinating when I heard this, in, 19, in, in uh, 193 to 211 AD, so about 200 years after Jesus, they started printing money, they were minting money, and on one side was the emperor's face, and on the other side in this region was a depiction of Noah. Because the Gentiles believed that Noah was a righteous man who underwent great hardship and was their father. And so what Peter is doing is he's bringing in culture and he's saying, there's Enoch and some of you Jews believe in this Enoch. There's Noah and many of you Gentiles believe in this Noah, but there is a better Enoch and a better Noah and his name is Jesus. When we understand this backstory to a very tricky part of this passage, it actually pops brighter that Jesus Christ is the better Enoch and the better Noah. Jesus is this disruptive witness who takes death and turns it on its head and proclaims life and now sits on high as the victor. And so that's the main thing. This is the second part of the sermon. Through Christ's suffering, proclamation, and resurrection, he proclaims victory for us. Those are the three points I want us to look at in this very, very quickly. Christ's death was enough. Christ's proclamation is life through death. And Christ's resurrection means we win. So first, Christ's death is enough. It says here in the text, for Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. What that word is, there's this word that they use in the Bible called atonement. 
Now, some of you know this word, atonement, atoning for your sins. It's actually quite a popular word, I think, in this day and age. We know what this means. It means you've got to pay for what you have done. Paying your dues, atoning for your sins. But, my friends, if you don't take anything away, if you don't remember about Enoch and the Nephilim and Noah and all that other stuff, I want you to remember this, that Jesus Christ died for you, the righteous for the unrighteous. And there is such power in those words. Christ's death is enough. In college, I experienced a lot of failure. In fact, I failed out of college. I got a lot of Fs in college. And uh, during my year off, I went down to North Carolina and I met Amber. So it all kind of worked out in the end. At least for me. I don't know if it worked out for her. But as we were dating, I went to her church in Richmond, Virginia, outside of Richmond. And I remember the pastor saying this, and I love this image. Atonement is this. Your F for Jesus' A. You fail, but Jesus gets 100%, and then he trades you. Which I was always hoping somebody was going to do in college, right? And he trades you. Your failure, he takes it all. And he gives you all of his A. Christ's death is enough. The victory of Christ on the cross, Martin Luther says this. This is why he's a better Enoch. This is what Jesus Christ does. Martin Luther says, takes away the law. Kills my sin, destroys my death in his body, and in this way empties hell, judges the devil, crucifies him, and throws him back into hell. In In other words, everything that once used to torment and oppress me, Christ has set it aside. He has disarmed it and made public example of triumphing over it. What does this mean to you and to me? It means this, that Christ's death is enough in your temptation. Christ's death is enough in your failure. When you fall, when you fail, when the accusations start to fly that you aren't enough, you can say, that's right, I'm not enough, but Christ is enough. And that cross looms over you with one word written across it, tetelestai, which means it is finished. I am enough for you. That's what Christ says here. I read an article uh, this past week about this pastor who was visiting this man. This man was dying. And on his deathbed, he asked a question. The pastor said, in life, there's so many questions, right? Like, what are we going to do after church? What are we going to eat for dinner? What are we going to go for dad to celebrate dad? But this pastor says, this dying man asks the only question. And this is what he asks. Is everything forgiven? And the pastor answered, yes. Everything is forgiven. That is what Peter is saying here. Christ's Death is enough. 
Jesus was that righteous man who suffered and died for you, the unrighteous. And it's forgiven. When you put your faith in him, it is finished. And then Jesus goes on, and, or Peter goes on and proclaims what Jesus proclaims. He proclaims life through death. Jesus' proclamation is life through death. We just read it earlier. What is our only hope in life and death? And I thought Connell did an excellent job in kind of setting up the Heidelberg. What this is, it's a teaching tool. Because you and I, I don't know, maybe in like 30 minutes after this is all over, you are going to question, what is the purpose of all this? At least in the next seven days you're going to ask that. What is the purpose of all this? What is my hope? What is my happiness? What is my joy? And then you go back there, that I am not my own, but I belong to Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what Christ proclaims, that, through, that life comes through death. This life through death image is why Peter talks about Noah and the flood, and then he links it to baptism. Let's look at that for a moment. He says this, He links the proclamation that Jesus makes, that Jesus wins. I'm the winner. You're the loser. That's what he says to all those spirits that are in prison. These spirits that were hanging around during the days of Noah. And then he links it to Noah. Noah, who do you remember? The Gentiles thought was a righteous man who was treated very unrighteously. And yet Noah... Who, was unjustly, who unjustly suffered, was saved by God. How was Noah saved by God? He wasn't saved by the ark. He was saved by the water. Noah wasn't saved by the ark. He was saved by the water. Since the flood not only wiped out all the evil, but it caused that boat to float. The water claimed that boat through death, which was the water. Through death, Noah lives. Just like through Christ's death, we live. Peter then links that to baptism. Baptism is a sign and a seal that you are claimed by God. Just like that water claimed that ark and lifted it to safety. Baptism claims us. He says here, baptism, it's not a removal of dirt from the body, but it's an appeal to God for a good conscience. Baptism is not cleaning, it's claiming. There is certainly a sign that baptism, elsewhere in the Bible it talks about baptism being washing and washing away of our sins and the washing of of us in Christ's blood. But here, Peter is driving home a different point of baptism That baptism is not something you do. It's something that is done to you. You cannot get a clean conscience, can you? You know that. Even in the deep recesses of your brain, there's still nastiness back there. You can't get a clean conscience. It's almost like you've got to be washed by someone else to get a clean conscience. And that is exactly what he is saying here. The death of Jesus Christ, which claims us and appeals to God on our behalf for a clean conscience. Baptism is a sign and seal of that. That new life comes through death. Christ's death. Our death. Christ's life for our life. 
Christ's disruptive witness in your life is that his death is enough and that through his death you have life. And this all kind of culminates in the passage, all kind of climaxes in this passage to the lifting our eyes up to a risen Lord who reigns over all things. He says this, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. My friends, this is probably the most important thing for us to remember as we go into next week and we talk about suffering is that we have a God, we have a Jesus who reigns over us. During Easter, uh, I had this quote from Frederick Buchner, which says this, the resurrection means the worst news is not the last news. Remember what the worst news was for those disciples? Jesus is dead. And the best news, come and see, he's not there anymore. The resurrection is the best news. Christ has the last word with that empty tomb but it doesn't stop there. In the resurrection, there's also the ascension. We don't talk about this much in church. Not only is he resurrected, he then ascended and he's now sitting in heaven. And you know what he's doing in heaven? Psalm 110 says, he's sitting with his feet up. Stool, it says. Can you picture that? Like a Jesus who's like, just like sitting with his feet up. It's done. It's finished. What does it say here? He says, Angels, authorities, and powers have been subjected to him. There's this image about the lazy boy, Jesus in the recliner, if you will, that should bring us rest. That should bring us rest when our life is falling apart. That Jesus is still reigning. He is still ruling. He sees you. He loves you. He knows you. Jesus sitting down after his resurrection secures us to himself and his ascension and in his ascension he subjects everything to himself abraham kuyper who is dead and gone now so i can quote him because i don't think anything's going to come out bad about him adrian uh, abraham kuyper was a politician in fact he was the prime minister i think of the netherlands or of holland at one point but he was also a christian and he says this, when Jesus Christ, upon his resurrection and ascension, he looks at the whole world, and I want you to keep this image in mind. He looks at the whole world, and he says, there's not a square inch that isn't mine. Your kids, they're Christ's. Not a square inch of their life isn't his. That marriage that you're wondering, is it worth it? There's not a square inch that isn't his. A culture that seems like it's going haywire, there's not a square inch that he says, doesn't say, that's mine. And in the church, he looks at every one of you and says, you're mine and you're mine and you're mine and you're mine. Like Oprah, right? <laughs> you get a car, you get a car. You're mine, you're mine. Every square inch. Christ is our disruptive witness by dying once and for all for us, by proclaiming to those spirits that he wins and they lose. And now he sits on high to rule and reign, which means that you are free. Tomorrow, um, we're going to celebrate. Certain segments of this culture celebrate, and we should celebrate Juneteenth. Juneteenth is this day of remembrance for the African-American community. 
Back in September 22, 1862, Abraham Lincoln proclaimed, he told the nation, he didn't invite them to believe, he told them that there was emancipation for slaves. The Emancipation Proclamation was, an, was not an invitation to freedom. It was telling Africans and African Americans that they were free, that they are. The Emancipation Proclamation changed everything in this country, for it proclaimed freedom to a people that thought they would never have freedom. Over two and a half years later, there were still those who lived under the thumb of their oppressors and masters. And on June 19, 1865, a group of soldiers rode, rode into Galveston, Texas with the good news, a proclamation that they were free. Now, could you imagine that? These Africans and African Americans who lived under slavery, and then you hear, what, wait, we're free? And they say, yeah, you've been free for two and a half years. Why are you living like this? You can imagine, there was great celebration. There was also great struggle, and there was for many years after, and still is today. I don't want to rob the African-American culture from that, and, and African-American um, here, from that moment, from that emancipation, from that freedom. But I also believe that it is a great illustration of many Christians who still live under the oppression of their sin and not realizing that they are free in Christ, that his death is enough, that his proclamation is life through death. And for you to put your faith in him means that not only do you get a savior, but you get a risen Lord over all of your life. And so this morning, if you are still living under the weight, the shame, the guilt of your past and your present, come to Jesus and be saved. Because I have good news for you. Jesus has defeated death. He has conquered all the powers of hell. And he sits on his throne over all things. That's why we come to the table. Because it disrupts our life once again. As we see our Savior and our Victor and our King. So let's go there now. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come to the table now, we pray that you will once again remind us of what you have done for us, that we are free, that you have paid our debt, that you have proclaimed to the principalities of, of the air that you are the victor and that you are now our king. So, Lord, as we come to the table again, remind us of this good news. Show us who we are and whose we are through what you have done. Amen.